Welcome back to The Francisca Show, where we encourage fellow artists and entrepreneurs to collaborate and support each other while sharing their stories. I'm Francisca, a singer, composer, and also your host. And just before we begin the show, I'd like to thank our sponsors. ShopDrop is an iPhone app that lists every sample sale in New York. So if you want to buy designer clothes without breaking the bank, go to your iPhone and download the ShopDrop app today. Today with us, we have a guest all the way from Australia. We have an 18-hour difference. It feels like I'm talking to the future. A former opera singer, artist, and boxer, Rosa Crail. Welcome to the show. It's so good to have you. Thank you, Freddy. It's very good to speak to you. You were a big influence for me when I was growing up. You were in Moscow from Australia. You were studying at the Moscow Conservatorium, studying opera. You made a big impression on me. Well, let's rewind a little bit. Tell us how your music career began in Australia. My family is all Russian and they immigrated here. And both my parents were professional musicians. And I was exposed to a lot of music from a young age. I was really exposed to three types of music, classical music, I guess, which was through my mother. The other type was rap and hip hop because at the time I had an older brother and he would listen to a lot of rap and I wanted to emulate him. So I ended up listening to a lot of rap. And then through my education, I started to be exposed to prayer, which was song as well. So all those three things were kind of, from the very beginning, very, very much in me. I never really decided that I wanted to sing opera. I just had this massive sort of voice and it was most suited to that genre. One of the first things I remember seeing is a Russian choir and being very affected by that because of the sound. But in hindsight, now I can see that all those sort of choral melodies, whether it Russian melodies or Gregorian chants and all those sort of things, I was very much attracted to those sacred sorts of sounds because those choir, the overall sound, it stems from prayer. After I finished high school here, I ended up going to Moscow and I, I guess I started receiving a higher education as a, as a classical singer. So how did you decide to train as a classical singer? I mean, an education, I guess, was expected. That's what you did. And there was, there was no way to really get educated, I guess, as a pop singer. I didn't really consider that an option. So that's how I started my, my formal education as a classical singer. I had been taking lessons and I, I mean, I started at a really, really young age with the classical music. So for everyone out there, Rosa's voice is a powerhouse. So you went you went to the Moscow Conservatorium. Could you just share a little bit of what it was like? What kind of environment were you the in? The Moscow Conservatorium was probably, for me, the most overwhelming environment that I had ever been in. As a Westerner, I was very much perceived as an outsider, and the fact that I was Jewish was also something that was highlighted a lot. And that's how I actually met your family, because one of the first things that someone said to me 
there was, hi, um, I heard you were Jewish, to which I sort of innocently replied, yeah, I am. And, you know, the first thing they said was, so how, can, can you tell me why you killed our Lord, Jesus Christ? And one of the first thoughts I had was, well, how can I sort of annoy these people more, which is why I went to the synagogue there, sort of became a lot more religious. That was what actually spurned it. The conservatory is very, very hard to summarise. Um, I came in from a very, very young age. I had a massive, massive voice and the teaching system there was very rigid. It was very Soviet in many ways. I wasn't taught in my correct vocal category. So that kind of means that, you know, if you write, if you're naturally, you write with your right hand, it's not someone trying to teach you to write with your left hand. It's kind of the equivalent of someone trying to teach you to write with your foot. It does terrible damage if you're not taught according to what your voice is. So I have a mezzo-soprano, which is a medium voice, and I was taught as a lyric soprano. When I realised this, which was already five years, well, I started realising it about three, four years into it, but when I did something about it, it was right before graduation, and I changed teachers, I changed voice categories, and it was a very, very big thing in Moscow because there's this sort of sense of loyalty that if you leave a teacher on a faculty, it's a lot of drama. The teacher I had was very, very well known. It just wasn't something that you did. It sounds like Olympic yeah, athletes yeah, like who train trainers. It, it, Exactly. It's exactly like that. And if you leave a trainer, it's a big thing. It's not just you kind of going to someone else. There are loyalties, there are politics. You need time to adjust. And in most places like that, you usually kind of get some additional time to adjust. When you change a voice category, you get an extra year. When you change a teacher, you get an extra year. So I did both those two things when I had to graduate and I got no extra time. They made it very clear that the only reason they didn't kick me out was because I was a foreigner, which meant that I had to pay for my education, whereas um, Russians didn't. And, you know, so it was, a, it was, it was quite an event. Um, when I got through it during my graduation, I sort of handmade these invitations and I just invited everyone that I knew And it was something that I'll never forget. And they all came in to support me. That kind of infuriated the faculty even more. You know, so. my time there was, was, was very interesting. I had a lot of people who supported me from different faculties and people who were really incredible musicians who would take me to one side and, and sort of say, it's just all politics and you've got to keep going and this is your voice and you have to fight them and... That's how it remained, the, the part of the faculty and the part of the conservatorium that were kind of honest and ethical, they always supported me and the ones who were about politics always didn't. You know, in saying that, it was probably the happiest time of my life because I was really, really fighting for my voice and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a fighter by By, by nature, nature. Oh. you know, so it, it really, it really formed who I was and it taught me a lot about just, you always have to, you know, be on the side of truth. You, you really do. Um, and this was, you have to pick your battles, but this was a battle that 
that I needed to do. Otherwise, I just would never have sung anything at all. That's so interesting. So you did mention how you were attracted to choir and prayer style genre yeah. of singing. Yeah. And the anti-Semitic provoking comments that you got in Moscow uh, led you and sent you straight to synagogue and to Judaism. So I can yeah. imagine you enter the synagogue, you, you come to your first or was it your first Shabbos? It wasn't my first Shabbos meal because I'd attended, you know, a very orthodox school in Sydney. But it was the first time I realized that I needed to start learning. That was the most important thing that I started learning and I started trying to find a way to, I guess, connect everything because it was never really just about singing for me. It was always about expressing very truthful, very, I guess, sacred things. And the only way that I could do that was with my voice. That was the beginning and it's something that I've come to now that what I'm trying to do with the repertoire that I'm singing now, with the things that I'm writing, everything is kind of just an expression of that truth. So I'm just curious, what was it like, the singing leading you to Judaism and then Judaism telling you that Kolisha is something forbidden? It was, it, it, look, it was very, very problematic. It tore me apart for many years. What changed? But I guess that the bottom line was that it's not to say that rabbinical halachot are of less importance because they're not, right? But I don't think that we can't argue that many, many are controversial and many, many are open to interpretation. You know, there was a series of very serious and sort of, you know, things that were done within halacha and even though I I would still be singing had I not gotten that permission, um, I did get it. I'm really trying to heal myself with my voice and I'm really trying to heal other people. When I perform, you know, I have rules that are halakhically as strict as possible from what I sing to how I'm dressed to... One of the big reasons that I stopped singing opera is because I realised that these characters that you play and some of them, you know, are very sort of raunchy characters and the way that opera is produced right now, which has really changed, especially in the past 10 years because it's really just become a business. I can't play any of these women. I can't do any of those things because it's too unpure for me, even though I'm just, you know a humble soul and I have no authority, the people who come hear me sing and they hear how I sing, they can feel what I'm trying to do. And, you know, there's nothing I think more powerful than a woman's voice. And, you know, it's something that I've written and, and something that's sort of very much fundamental to what I'm doing now. The potential that it has to seduce and entice and all those things, it has the same potential to repair and to uplift and to redeem. And that's why it's feared and that's why it's often silenced and that's why it's forgiven because you have to be very careful how you use your voice as a woman. Since you're so connected to the spiritual aspect of singing, 
Have you ever considered using your singing in a spiritual sense, like in synagogue? I would never go even, you know, to a reform synagogue or to, for the sake of singing, right? Because I don't think women should should lead prayer. And I, I completely understand why in that setting. I'm not standing at the quartel. I'm I'm not in a shul. You've mentioned that you derailed from the genre of singing that you have been trained in. You keep saying what I'm working on. I'd like for you to explain to us what you've been writing and what show you have created. Hip opera has, you know, <laughs> like the Torah, it's got many, many layers on the surface. It's a show where you have classical melodies and Semitic melodies and ancient melodies combined with hip-hop. So that's where the name hip-hopera comes from, right? So it's a mashup. You're mixing two genres. It's a performance, and the format of the performance has quite a few genres. So there is the classical genre, but it's more so in art songs than in arias. So art songs are simply songs that were written, say, in the uh, 18th, 19th, 20th century, right, from classical composers, and arias are from operas. The, the one common thread is that a lot of these songs were prohibited in that wherever they were written, from whatever century, from whatever, whatever genre we're talking about, they were fighting some sort of system from within some sort of ghetto. So, for example, when I'm singing Shostakovich, who was a Russian composer, he was writing music that the subtext was fighting against the Russian Soviet communist regime. The hip-hop that I'm using, right, which is from a ghetto of a later time, that was a protest to, you know, the horrific conditions that African-Americans were, were kept under in their ghettos. Anything that's a prayer, anything is always a protest because if you look at the lyrics, you know, if, if you look at Tehillim, right, it's a protest about everything that was happening to King David at the time, right? Like, that's what prayer is. You're, you're reaching out to God fighting for truth. When I present these pieces, even though on one hand I'm just trying to sing things that I love and things that I love come from lots of different styles of music that were written centuries apart, what they have in common is that it's something that's fighting for truth. It's a feeling of the voice in exile, right, which as much as it is a belief that we have, it, it's, you know, it, it's quite existential, but it's also the spirit of all this music was composed in that sort of spirit because when something's prohibited or when you have to write something that's then censored, that's also in exile because you're unable in many ways to have the material heard initially the way that you want it to be heard. And the fact that you're being censored, that's also a sense, I guess, of exile. So the production is really, you know, it's interesting in that because there are so many different styles, the format is something that's of interest to people because when you give people an hour and a half of classical music, it's very hard for people to focus these days, right? Unless they're real classical lovers, it's very hard to focus on that. But when you present 
you know, a classical song that's three or four minutes and then maybe a contemporary song. And, and then you do something that's hip hop, which is just kind of combining these things that are really difficult to combine. People are suddenly very interested because they don't know what's coming next. They don't understand what's happening. Whenever you go and see any performer, you know, you know what they're going to be singing. You don't really expect such huge contrast, right? You, you don't find many performers who are singing in such vastly kind of bipolar genres. That's why a lot is put on production value because that's what keeps people interested. It's the show. It's often not the quality. It's just the actual, the effects of the show. I'm trying to bring it back to the quality. I'm trying to sing things that need to be heard and that have messages that are really intrinsically important. It took me a long time to realise that those are the only things that I can sing. I have to be singing things that I believe in. And I guess I have to be singing things that connect me to God. Otherwise, I don't see the point of performing at all, really. So you really it's... created a new category, a new genre of music. Yeah, and... I think so. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I need to sound humble about it. So I don't know how, but I am humble about it. That's that's the answer to the question. Well, yeah. you're very humble. You know why? And I'll bring it up with my next question, which I which is the theme in the podcast in the show is you clearly have to have a support system because you're in your 30s, right? In my late 30s. In your yeah. late 30s. And you have been doing music your entire life. As we all yep. know, if you want to make money, don't go into the arts. <laughs> so clearly you had to have a an emotional support system and a financial support system to make this happen. I'm very, I guess, unusual in that to be very, very blunt, right, and, and transparent. I've always known that I have a very sort of direct connection to God. If you look at a person's life and if you go by that sort of checklist that adults have, right, those things that generally symbolise success and stability and adulthood, I don't have those things. I don't have a partner. I don't have children. I don't have stable income. You know, I, I don't have that checklist. Whatever events brought me to this point in my life, the more that I kept going, the more that I kept doing what I just always knew that I was meant to do, the more sort of faith I started developing. And whenever I took a wrong turn, whether it was, you know, something professionally or a lot of things personally, I always felt the consequences immediately. I never doubted God's handiwork in all of it. I kind of suffered a lot because I've had quite a tumultuous life, but I never doubted that that was an intrinsic part of the process as well. The support that I got when I was younger, because I was so full of doubts and because it never made sense that I was studying, you know, opera when I knew the whole time I never wanted to be an opera singer, I really relied on people, you know, there were, there were a lot of messengers, there were a lot of people who were like angels in my life. There were people who would always very mysteriously sort of pop up and they were my mentors. And in moments of great doubt and great fear, I would turn to them. That continued for me. And then when I became sort of resilient enough not to need those voices and not to need that 
validation. My own voice sort of became enough. You know, when you really, really want something, sometimes you need to kind of let it go a little bit and then things start happening. I have a team of people now in Moscow who are very interested in this idea and I know that that's the way forward. But I guess the best way to illustrate what I'm saying is, you know, this this whole project launched in this year, right? It was January that it started. For example, there was no marketing for this show that I did. And the show was big. It was at a place called Trackdown in Sydney, which is Fox Studios, which is where, you know, Australia does all its sort of movies and editing and a lot of filming. It was an incredible place to record. A friend of mine, the producer of the Winter Olympics, of the World Cup, he helped me stage the thing. He was an enormous help. There are a lot of very good, good people working on it. But the audience members was made up of people that I had simply bumped into, you know, randomly, but not randomly. And we made some sort of connection. And this is just like in everyday life. A lot of these people were strangers. These people came on faith. They were given a handwritten, you know, a hand-drawn invitation, and they just came. No one had ever heard me sing. No one knew who I was, you know. No one asked for my bio. It was just, I guess I'm convincing when I was talking about the show then because it's just something that I believe in. And people can feel that, and they can feel whether this is something that's real or you know, it's something that they can skip. So we got a big room of people together. You know, it was almost like, you know, it's kind of biblical, like you're kind of walking the streets and 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 gathering the crowds, but that's what it was. So that's my support, knowing that I'm capable of that, knowing that even though I don't have that checklist and I, I don't have those things that you know, we're always told you're meant to have, people have, people have different sort of paths. And sometimes those things are not necessarily evidence that this is your path. Sometimes it just comes from faith and it just comes from trust. And that's my support system now. You know, my father has always really, really supported what I'm doing, but I've had more people not support me and very close people as well. And that's been incredibly painful. But that's also what just makes me so determined because I think that when you're capable of bringing a lot of light into the world, there are going to be, there have to be counter forces that balance that out. So if you're capable of doing something really big and something very pure, you're going to be met with a lot of resistance. That's just the dynamics of how the world works, right? That's how, those aren't my rules. Those are God's rules. So I see it like that, that, I met with resistance and there are different ways to sort of deal with that. But once you just keep going, you know, your faith is reaffirmed again. So it's been people, but then it's just been, I guess, this inner voice that I have. And also when I do these things, you know, the biggest indicator of whether you're doing something the right way is what happens to you when you're in the process of doing it. So when you're doing something wrong, you know that it's wrong. And when you're doing something right, you know, you don't notice time. You don't notice how much time you're practicing or how much time you're writing content or what it, whatever is part of that process. There's just this feeling that this is what 
I'm meant to be doing. So I have to trust that feeling because if I don't, then then I have nothing, you know, because I have none of the external validations that this is going to get somewhere or this is going to, you know, really, people are really going to hear this on a large scale. I don't, I don't have that validation and maybe they won't. But if they won't, then they're not meant to, you know. But this this is my path because I'm not on any other one. It's really beautiful and inspiring to hear you talk about your search for your path, for your voice, and for your spirituality and how you don't let anything get in the way. It does sound like you're getting to where you want to go, that you're achieving the goals and dreams you have for yourself and for your music. If there's anything you wanted the world to hear, what would that be? I think that there is an absolute truth. I believe that that absolute truth is God and the rules that he's literally given people how to live so that things are at their best and and at their nicest. And I think that all the person is really meant to do is to find a way to bring that truth and to express that truth to the world. This is my way. This is my contribution. It's not something that I picked because it's a very hard path and it's a very lonely path. And, you know, I often wish that I did have a checklist because I, I think life would be would be sort of simpler. I What I want the world to hear is my voice and my minute, you know, minute, 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 contribution in expressing that absolute truth and with my music with what I'm trying to do it really unifies and it brings people together the songs and the words and the lyrics they're just an expression of that you know when you take something sacred and when you take something from the street like a prayer and like hip-hop you're combining the the things that you, you can't really understand how they can be combined but that's our task every day, right? It's to take whatever spirituality we have and that we're developing and try and execute it in mundane physicality. I really wish you, you know, Thank that you. you're wishing for. And it's really special to have you on the show. I feel like I grew up with you being that legitimate musician, someone who's professionally pursued their art. Thank you for playing a role like that in my life. And I hope others here enjoy and learn from you as well. And if you'd like to check out Rosa Krill, go on to Instagram, hip.hopra. If you have been enjoying this podcast, please make sure to leave us a review, subscribe, and share this show with people you think may also enjoy it. See you next time.